I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. The International Spy Museum is one of Washington's most popular tourist destinations, a celebration of the world of espionage, with exhibits depicting everything from undercover operations against the Nazis and Soviets to the hunt for Osama bin Laden. Over the past year, it's moved into a new expanded location with a new executive director perfectly suited for the job. Chris Costa, a former Special Forces Operations Officer, who was named to the Commando Hall of Fame and who later served as Chief of Counterterrorism in Donald Trump's White House. We'll talk to Costa about the fallout from the U.S. drone strike that killed Iranian General Qassem Soleimani and the changing world of espionage, as well as the controversy over the Spy Museum's exhibit on CIA-enhanced interrogation techniques on this special Spy Museum episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, I've been uh, anxious to talk to Costa for some time, ever since a few months ago. I met him at a security conference in Doha, of all places, but now seems the exact best time to do so. Costa was uh, deeply involved in shaping counterterrorism policy during the first year of the Trump White House, and certainly on his radar screen was General Soleimani and the Iranian role in the Mideast. On his radar screen, because if you've been doing counterterrorism anytime at all in the last uh, few decades, you're going to know about General uh, Soleimani because he and his uh, Quds Force, which he's led for all this time, has been uh, pretty active on the terror front, uh, largely in the region, in, in Iraq and other parts of the Middle East. But they have been a force for a very long time. And, you know, to some extent, uh, this event was kind of coming to a head. But lots of interesting questions about how it was done, why it was done, the legal rationale behind it, and some pretty legitimate questions about whether the Trump administration kind of handle all of it and, and the fallout from it and the explanation of it well. Yeah. I mean, fair to say that the communications on this and the public explanations have been uh, about as disastrous as you can imagine. I mean, you get these shifting explanations about what prompted it. You get, you know, the claims of an imminent attack that uh, Suleimani was supposedly plotting, that we have no details 
Nichols on, and then we have the Secretary of Defense, Esper, uh, over the weekend, uh, which was after we taped the interview with Costa, we should point out, saying that, well, actually, in spite of the president's claim that there was intelligence about attacks, imminent attacks on probably four embassies, the guy in charge of planning the counterstrikes, the Secretary of Defense, uh, never saw that intelligence at all, didn't know anything about what four embassies Suleimani was supposedly preparing to attack. So not- You know, you a, know why? What? Because there why wasn't that? any. <laughs> because there wasn't any, you know, because it's, 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 the, it's the president, you know, just kind of mouthing off. And saying yeah. whatever he thinks about in the moment. It's just crazy. But listen, there was a so that happened over the weekend. And then there was another story that NBC had that actually, despite all the claims of imminence, the president gave the authority, conditional authority for the military to take out Soleimani seven months ago. And so, um, right. you know, the notion that there was some imminent attack and yet they waited seven months to carry it out is kind of incredible. And, you know, look, we've talked about this on the show before. Why is this question of imminence important? It's important because it goes to the heart of the idea that this strike was done in self-defense. Why is that important? It's important because if it's not done in, in self-defense and under international law and under domestic law, under executive orders uh, originally signed by Gerald Ford, but then signed by other presidents from both parties, it's an assassination and assassinations are illegal. So this is important stuff. Yeah, well, we do get into this with um, Costa in our interview. But I should point out, as we, I think, have also pointed out, that the Obama White House sort of set the precedent of a very broad definition of imminent, that in their legal memos justifying the targeted killings by drones of Awlaki, Anwar Awlaki in Yemen and others. They specifically said imminent doesn't really mean we have information about attack about to happen. A broader concept of imminence, and that's an exact quote used in the uh, white paper that was uh, sent to the Hill to explain the legal justifications for the attack on Alaki. They made it clear, the Obama lawyers, that imminence can be defined more broadly as we have information that this is is a bad guy. This is a bad guy who's affiliated with groups that mean us harm. And we can assume that if he hasn't disavowed those groups uh, and prior rhetoric, that the targeted individual is likely planning another attack on us. And that's imminent enough for us. But before we, uh, we close out on that, I should quote from the president's uh, earlier tweet today on Monday responding to some of this criticism, and I'll read it uh, as it was originally written. The fake news media and their Democrat partners are working hard to determine whether or not the future attack by terrorist Suleimani was, and the president wrote, eminent or not. (laughs) E-M-I-N-E-N-T. And was my team in agreement? That's uh, since been fixed. And uh, the correct spelling of imminent is now on the uh, president's uh, Twitter 
feed, but um, once again, proof positive that uh, nobody actually reads these uh, Trump tweets before they go out and uh, misinform the world. Um, well, we should point out. In he, any he, case, we should point out that it was also he also put out a tweet of uh, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi in uh, wearing turbans. So, and you don't think that was real? <laughs> well. You know, I mean, I haven't done any reporting on it yet, so you know, maybe <laughs> okay, we should well. check it out. All right. Save your comments for when you have reporting <laughs> as to whether or not that was uh, Pelosi wearing a turban on the president's uh, Twitter handle. Anyway, let's uh, get to Costa because it's a fascinating discussion. For the first year of the Trump administration, Chris Costa was a member of the National Security Council and the Director for Counterterrorism. Before that, he was a longtime Army counterintelligence specialist and a special operations officer at the U.S. Special Operations Command. He joins us today on Skullduggery. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, so much to talk about right now, but I want to sort of take big picture. The critique that a lot of people have had about the Trump administration's national security policies is that it has been episodic, chaotic, no clear strategy. And a lot of people look at events unfolding in recent days with the um, confrontation with Iran after the operation, the drone strike on General Soleimani as new evidence of just how chaotic this administration has been. Do you agree with that assessment? I don't agree with that assessment. And I view the world through a counterterrorism lens because that's the work that I did the first year of the administration. And I think it was a very coherent strategy that was the result of our work. We operationalized it the first year while I was there. And um, iteratively, we grew that strategy, and subsequently it was published. I couldn't be more happy with the work that our team did focus on counterterrorism. I like to say not chaos, but uncertainty in the first months of the administration, just because consider the fact that the National Security Advisor, General Flynn, left the NSC. Then we had General McMaster after a small gap. So there was a lack of continuity for a month or two. And yeah. it was a new administration. Well, look, I want to I want to go back to those days, but we're talking about right now yeah. uh, in the wake of the Soleimani assassination. And that's what it was. The Iranians have pulled out of the uh, nuclear agreement entirely, saying right. they're going to enrich uranium. Just today, Friday, the Iraqi prime minister has told Secretary of State Pompeo he wants a timetable for the withdrawal of U.S. troops. He appears right. to be on board with what the Iraqi parliament voted. Neither of those can be good consequences for the United States in the wake of the Soleimani um, killing. Right. Well, first of all, I do take issue with the characterization of an assassination. I really think it was an act of self-defense within the authority of the president. These aren't administrative talking points. This is my assessment as a career professional. I truly believe it was an act of self-defense. It was proportionate, and I think it was the right thing to do. Suleimani and his forces killed Americans that I know, and I can still be dispassionate about the action, and I think... I didn't see the current intelligence, but I think anywhere along the way, President Bush 
uh, W. Bush, as well as President Obama. I have heard that they considered taking strikes on Suleiman. But they chose not to do it. Right. Because and, of the consequences. Right. And that's the question. And I will tell you, I read a piece by General Petraeus that really was thought-provoking on the idea of deterrence. I think deterrence is back in place. To the points that you just made, I don't know what's going to happen. I could be wrong. But I think that this also sets the stage in time because there's passions that have been unleashed. But I think in time, there is the strong possibility to get the Iranians back to the table. Chris, let me, let me um, sure. follow up on something that uh, Mike was alluding to, which was that this notion that the national security policy has been somewhat chaotic in this administration. And so it's kind of a process question. The National yes. Security Council you know, is there to make sure that there is a thoughtful process. The president gets all the information he or she, should they be a woman president, that they need to make these operational decisions sometimes in a thoughtful way and to consider all of the potential ramifications right. of those decisions. So based on your experience, was there a, a good, thoughtful, careful, deliberative process? And do you think that played out in this particular case? Do you think that uh, the president and his advisors talked seriously about the possibility that Iraq would expel U.S. forces from the country and uh, that Iran would pull entirely out of the uh, Iran nuclear agreement? So those are all fair questions. First, let me go back to your first point. I'm a believer in the, the national security decision-making process. It's been around for 70 years. A key point, it's whatever the president wants to do with that staff. They are fall under the rubric of the, the executive. It is how the president chooses to use right, that Right, there's staff. different models. That's right. There's different models, and I understand there's going to be some streamlining, and I think that's probably a good idea, and I trust that Robert O'Brien will do that very effectively. All of that said, I can't speak to what went on in the internal debate. Even if I was there, I couldn't talk about that. But I believe that when you lay out, even if it's on an index card and you go in to brief the president, you talk about the ramifications, the what ifs. And I believe that those ramifications were discussed. The day after was discussed. I just don't know to the extent that it, it occurred. So was Suleimani on your radar screen when you were at the National Security Council? I can say that I was not tracking Suleimani. I was tracking broadly what was happening with the Quds Force, certainly what was happening with Iran. We always had an awareness of where Suleimani was in the battle space, but I will tell you that my focus, our focus the first year of the administration, and this goes back to my initial comments, we were focused on defeating ISIS, taking away the physical right. caliphate. And on that front, Suleimani and his Iranian-backed militias were on your side. He was an asset for what was your top priority as That's director right. of counterterrorism. Well, and moreover, if, if U.S. forces are ex expelled from Iraq, it's going to make that fight against ISIS uh, so much harder and the likelihood that ISIS will reform so much more likely, right? So I do worry about a resurgent ISIS. I'm not going to come off of that point. It, it's something that concerns me. But we've also demonstrated, the United States has demonstrated capabilities to do offshore operations. And we can do that. In other words, with a smaller footprint in Syria, it can be done. And to your point, Michael, and that's an excellent point, it is a strange, strange 
truth, right, that we are aligned with Iranian objectives to destroy ISIS, which, back to my point, it allows some room in the future. It really does. Somebody wrote a piece, actually someone who served with me on the NSC, it was published yesterday in The Hill, that talked about the very nature, that there's room for cooperation. Stranger things have happened in the world of counterterrorism. But, you know, look, after the drone strike, administration officials at every level described Soleimani as a terrorist. You were the director of counterterrorism for the Trump National Security Council, but you weren't tracking this terrorist because he was an asset for what the United States was trying to accomplish in the region. I wouldn't say he was an asset. Again, I because well, he was on your side. He was he, fighting he the was same aligned, enemy right. you were. He was aligned with our same enemies. That right. is absolutely fair. But our priority was, in fact, ISIS, and it was a very high priority. They were the ones that posed an immediate threat to the United States. We have people in, in my world have been tracking the fact that Iran has lethal capabilities but they didn't demonstrate an intent to unleash those lethal capabilities toward the United States. Now that, it seems to me that recently and dramatically, the Iranians tested the United States to the result of what just happened. And that goes back to my point on the necessity for deterrence. But it is also the case that Iran, between 2011, between the uh, the time of the the, uh, nuclear agreement, and when the U.S. pulled out of the nuclear agreement, that the Iranians did not take any shots at, at Americans. They were not conducting themselves the way they have uh, been more recently. So do you draw any connection between the withdrawal from the nuclear agreement and Iran's malign actions toward the United States specifically? Not entirely, because what the Iranians are adept at doing is, and Soleimani was the master of it. And I don't want to give him too much credit because others can fill his shoes in time. Then what do we gain by going after him, by taking him out? Well, because he was, in fact, a terrorist. He was, in fact, operating inimical to U.S. interests. And I believe he was involved with attack planning, aligned with popular mobilization force leadership. And again, the the dynamic in their threat calculus changed, evidently, the Iranians. They were ratcheting up the pressure, and it looks like they were moving toward some kind of action. I don't doubt that whatsoever. I haven't seen the intelligence. I haven't talked to anybody in the administration about it, but that's from my optic. But the idea that they operate in our space, in places, former space, where we had a bigger presence on the ground in places like Yemen, working with proxies, the Houthis, they're stirring up, the Iranians have been stirring up problems for some time, and Michael, you know better than most, and they have a cyber capability that will be disruptive potentially in time. So all of these things are a calculus that we had to watch and monitor. By the way... And I didn't even mention Hezbollah, by the way. After the Soleimani strike and when people were anticipating an Iranian counter-reaction, there was a lot of talk about what the Iranian capabilities were. And not just in the region, but you mentioned cyber. Uh, They have already run cyber operations here in in the United States against banks, other kinds of institutions. But they are also known to have, as part of their their proxy force, Hezbollah cells, and even potentially right. sleeper cells in the United States. Is that real? I mean, does uh, do the Iranians have, do they direct Hezbollah sleeper cells in the United States, and is that a potential threat? 
they have a clandestine infrastructure capability, and it's been reported in media that they have a capability to put that infrastructure in the United States. And I think last year in New York City, there was a an arrest, I believe. I forget the details on that. Yeah, we hey, talked hey, about hey, this we on talked our podcast about this last week. Oh, did you? There was a, a, a yeah, right. a major Hezbollah operative who was just convicted right. and sentenced, I believe, last month. And this guy, according to uh, the FBI, was uh, conducting surveillance of right. um, of infrastructure, and bridges, tunnels, other potential targets in the United States. But we haven't seen Hezbollah attacks, right. terrorist attacks inside the country. We've that, heard talk of right. plotting and surveillance, but you know they've been here for you know more than 20 years now. We've been hearing about this, but no evidence of actual attacks. So therein lies why my focus wasn't early on on Soleimani. It's capabilities and intentions. There was no intent. We know that there's not just in the United States, there's a clandestine infrastructure structure for Hezbollah in certain places, but also globally. And Hezbollah has been called out on that. And I will say I was in the administration when we put a lot of pressure on Hezbollah. We had activated rewards for justice. In some ways, that was a very real way to ratchet up the pressure on former Hezbollah operators and proxies that operated against U.S. interests. You mentioned that Soleimani was responsible for the death of colleagues of yours. Tell us a little bit about that. So there were complex IEDs that crossed the border from Iran into Iraq during the height of the Iraq war. And uh, these projectiles caused horrific, horrific injuries. And I operated, I had individuals that worked for me as a commander, a small footprint of people that operated in southern Iraq. None of my forces uh, were killed from those projectiles, but I know others who were killed by those projectiles and maimed, not closely, I didn't know anyone closely and personally, but it doesn't matter. It represented the troops that okay, I had operating Okay, but look, this there. was during the height of the Iraq War. Right. Uh, we were fighting an insurgency. You had the Iranian fingerprints on these IEDs. You That's knew right. that Soleimani was directing it. Did you want to take him out then? And were there active discussions about doing that? At that point in my career, I can't speak to that. I didn't have any active discussions on going but after Soleimani. But the did. Right. And they, and they and didn't. They, rejected. They, they viewed it as too provocative and that there would be second and third order effects that they would be concerned about. Well, at the time, I was operating in a very lethal battle space. My focus was making sure risk to mission and risk to my folks were mitigated. And uh, fortunately, I didn't lose any guys, but I certainly didn't participate in any of those conversations at my level. I was a colonel. So, um, Chris, you and I met at the Safan uh, Center Security Conference in Doha in October. It was right after the president gave a green light to the Turks to go after the Kurds and announced that we were pulling U.S. troops out of Syria. As I recall, you were quite upset about the direction things were going and what the president was doing there. I want to explore that a little and also from today's perspective, how you feel about those events right now. So quite candidly, I was with Kurds in 1991, post-Desert Storm. I deployed for Desert Storm, and we redeployed, and then we went back to provide comfort. 
And we went back because thousands upon thousands of Kurds went across the Turkish border. I'm sorry, went across from Iraq into Turkey. And there was a humanitarian crisis of epic proportions. And the reason the Kurds did that is because Saddam Hussein started slaughtering Kurds. And Shiites began to rebel in the south. And at the time, there were unintended signals sent by H.W. Bush, and there were gaps in some of the peace and reconciliation that came out of the Gulf War, and uh, Saddam started killing people. That caused a humanitarian crisis. And what was interesting is... H.W. Bush made a decision to send U.S. troops, special operations, and others to Turkey to save lives. And it was very tense because, once again, it was disorienting to me to see this all play out again. So I would maybe upsetting, but maybe unsettling because I've seen this before. We've worked with the Kurds. We put Band-Aids on them. We saved lives. And then we established a security zone and sent them back into northern Iraq. And then from the first Gulf War till the present day, we have had connective tissue. We, the United States, have periodically work with the Kurds. Now, they're imperfect, right? The Kurds have been our allies, but at the same time, there are PKK among them. So this is an imperfect region to operate, and it's hard to balance. But I think the fact that we still have U.S. forces on the ground in Syria, the fact that we can still surge into Syria to conduct a counterterrorism operation leaves me very upbeat where we are right now. But isn't that just, you know, further evidence of how chaotic and unstable things are? The president announces, you know, one day we're going to pull out of Syria and then we don't. The president announces we're going to target cultural sites in Iran as potential retaliation. And then the defense secretary says, no, no way we're going to do that. It just seems at every turn you get a presidential <coughs> tweets and pronouncements that are either contradicted the next day or undermined by the people working for the president. So. I think some of the points you made are fair to assess our foreign policy. I take a longer view. And again, I'm not being Pollyanna-ish. I'm a student of history. I take a much longer view. And I don't know how things are going to settle in the Middle East. I don't know how long it's going to take. But I think the president's thinking on withdrawing troops in time from the Middle East, I think that appeals to a good number of the U.S. citizenry. I think the idea that in time we want to figure out how we can withdraw troops from Afghanistan when it's appropriate to do so. I think that is sensible over time because of this notion, in quotes, of course, of endless wars. All of that said, it is the Middle East is hard to get our arms around. It always has been complex. You both know how complex the Middle East is. And I will go back to my point on H.W. Bush. It would have appeared at the time from, I'm sure, from pundits of all sides that H.W. Bush was inconsistent with his messaging and it forced the Kurds to leave their homes. It in time, it resettled and it, it changed over time. And I think we got the policy right. Chris, we're going to 
spend a little time talking about spying as well, since we're here in the fabulous new And uh, we should point out spy that museum. Chris is the executive director of the new spy museum uh, here in Washington, D.C. Absolutely, D. which so. is an amazing uh, facility, and we're Thank really you very looking much. forward to seeing it. But just one last kind of overarching question on Iran, and I just want to get your sense of the administration's Iran policy, the sort of maximum pressure now assassinations or uh, targeted killings, if you if you prefer, of their top military leadership. Is it working? I mean, what is the evidence to su- suggest after 40 years of this confrontation with Iran that uh, squeezing the Iranians and going after their leadership like this is actually going to be effective and is going to be able to bring them to their knees? So I'd like to answer that by saying that for 40 years, and you made that point, since the hostage crisis of 1979, which I listened to on the radio, listened to people like yeah. you in New England talking about it. And I was Not in, me. I was, in, <laughs> I, I was in high school. <laughs> people like you. <laughs> right, right, right. But the point is, for 40 years, we haven't, we haven't got it right. So the idea that we change direction and we put more pressure on Iran with sanctions plus a proportionate direct action strike, I think, is more than appropriate. Let's just go back to 1979 for a second. The connective tissue with the Iranians, and this is where it is, it really cuts into bone for me. The Iranians took hostages in 1979. They still could tell us a whole lot more about Bob Levinson. What is his status? Um, just rereading, ironically, rereading a book by Jason Rezaian, a reporter from the Washington Post who was threatened with being executed for being an, a spy. So back, it all comes down to spying, right? And we tell the story of Argo, the Canadian caper, here at the museum, and how we got Americans out of uh, Iran. So we have been in a shadow war Although that sounds cliche, I believe that. We have been in a clandestine war for 40 years with Iran, and something isn't working, which is why I was so struck, so struck by General Petraeus's piece. And as a practitioner of counterterrorism, and having left the administration and reflecting, that resonated with me, the idea that we go after Soleimani, the time is right. And what did he do? He was on the ground in Iraq, and we just lost an American citizen. And we just lost that citizen in Baghdad, and our embassy was attacked. It takes us back 40 years. Well, you know, you've got a long memory. A lot of Americans do, but the Iranians have even longer memories. They go back 65 years to the coup that the United States uh, backed uh, to overthrow their government and install the Shah. For them, that was the original sin in U.S.-Iranian relations, and that's what they remember. You're talking about Mossadegh and the yes. Shah, Shah coming on board? Absolutely. Do you show that in the, in the spy so museum, by the way? Do we you don't have an exhibit about how the United States overthrew governments around the world during the 1950s. Absolutely yeah. not. We don't talk about that in particular, but we talk about failed Bay of Pigs, a yeah. covert action that went bad when compared to arming the Mujahideen. Now, it's an open question, right? Whether that was in the lens of hindsight, some of those individuals became our enemies. Blowback. That's right, blowback. We do talk about blowback there. We talk about the French operation to sink the Rainbow Warrior. So we are dis 
passionate about history. So this, we're not cheerleaders for any intelligence community. Despite the fact right. that I spent my life in the business, we reveal facts at the museum and we talk about co failed covert action we talk about blowback unequivocally well i should point out another controversy that you've been enmeshed in of, of late which is that a number of uh, senators saw your exhibit on the cia's use of enhanced interrogation techniques and found it wanting there was no mention of the senate report the landmark senate report now being celebrated in the movie the report which we've talked about on this on this show that clearly labeled um, those techniques as torture and ineffective as well. And I understand you're going to be revising or updating your exhibit. So thanks for allowing me to talk about that. First of all, I could not be more proud of our staff here for taking on a controversial issue. The old spy museum, everybody loved. Everybody loves the new spy museum more, and I think that's fair. But we built a museum, purpose-built, here in L'Enfant Plaza to tell more stories, and we didn't shy away from a controversial issue. We understand that we are not, the spy museum is not beholden to the intelligence community. We're not beholden to any political bodies. We're not beholden to international uh, intelligence organizations. What we want to do is get the facts right and tell the story appropriately. We made a decision not under pressure from any constituency. We made a decision to listen to all sides of the argument, and we're going to make some adjustments. Um, what, what adjustments are you going to make in that exhibit? I, I'll just talk about them broadly because we're still working through that. But first of all, in unequivocally, and unfairly, the exhibit keeps being called the torture exhibit. It is not the torture exhibit. It is about interrogation. And we're going to make that clear. We focused maybe a little bit more than we should have on the coercive methods. We want to talk about non-coercive interrogation. We talk about torture because torture is a part of the interrogation history throughout history, right, throughout intelligence history. So what we want to do is we want to make sure one more time that we get everything right. And it's been mischaracterized that there are factual errors. We found one factual error that we corrected, one factual error. What was error. that? I think it had to do with the timeline on one of the enhanced interrogations, and we have addressed that. What we want to do is make sure that it's balanced and that were factually accurate. But do you accept the basic conclusion of the Senate report, which was that the techniques used by the CIA were, were amounted to torture? So then you're getting into my personal point of view. And on this, I, I haven't gone on record talking about my point of view. Because what now I, is an opportunity well, to do so. <laughs> well, I think now, and uh, waterboarding in particular, is considered torture, right? I accept that unequivocally. So the CIA engaged in torture? No, because at the time they engaged what they believed was legal and it was authorized by, I think, DOJ memos. And here's the other thing that we tried to do, Michael. 
we wanted to make sure we contextualize the EI story. It's going to be in the long haul. It's going to be an important footnote in history. It truly is. But it is much, interrogation is much more broader. Torture throughout history is much more broader. The question of Algeria, what the Japanese did, what the Germans did, it has to be taken in context. Do you deal with, with, um, a, do you deal with Abu Ghraib? We, we don't because, again, that was... Abu Ghraib, unequivocally, that I can talk about from a personal standpoint. I was at U.S. Central Command. I was chief of human intelligence. I saw all the reporting. We had to make sure that there were interrogation uh, plans and that they were appropriate. We had to make sure U.S. service members who did the bulk of interrogations were doing those interrogations appropriately. That was simply and unequivocally a failure of leadership at the time unequivocally and I've been to Abu Ghraib there's no question but that's on a different scale of the context of the immediate aftermath of 9-11 when emotions were high the Americans demanded action and you know what it was America's program it was not CIA's program that is not a talking point I absolutely believe that it was America's program we all owned it and since there were adjustments made i think the sissy's work or the ssci's work is absolutely crucial in a democracy that's what we have that's what we have our legislators for that said there's a whole other point of view right there's the other side of the aisle that had a counter to that report there's the cia's reclama what we are going to do going forward is make sure that people have access to that at the spy museum it's a, a fascinating point you make uh, calling it america's program and i want to just make sure I understand what you're saying, is it that in the weeks, the months, the early period after the attacks, the sense of anger and the sense of, of a need to strike back was so strong among Americans that, that this was a program that they would have supported or did support through their representatives? There was, of course, stories about people like Dianne Feinstein and others who were briefed early on. Is, is that what you're saying? Because after all, this was done in black sites. It was done secretly. Very few Americans knew that waterboarding was taking place. So what exactly do you mean when you say it was America's program? It was a program that was stood up in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. I wouldn't, there was anger, but there was also a, a complete sense of uncertainty. I don't want to speak for you, but I thought I knew a little bit about the business of intelligence, and I was uncertain. I, I was unsettled for a variety of reasons we all were. And I think there was a lot of coherence in those mm -hmm. ideas in the aftermath of 9-11. Of and the CIA did and implemented a program that they thought would counter terrorism and get after those who were going to do harm to the United States because we didn't know if there was going to be another attack. And I think it's really important for people to come to the museum to listen, to see, listen not to me, listen to the people that implemented that program, their perspective, because we've offered them an opportunity to tell their story. One of the consequences of those practices, enhanced interrogation techniques, waterboarding, is that 19 years later, the perpetrators of the 9-11 attacks have yet to go on trial because they've been held in Guantanamo all these many years, but efforts to bring them 
to trial have been repeatedly stymied by the fact of the treatment they had uh, experienced and how much of that can be admitted into public evidence in a trial of them. First, the fact that so many years later, we have not been able to put Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and his Confederates on trial is an appalling statement on its face about the military justice system we created for this purpose. Do you agree? I agree that Guantanamo and the justice system, it has been completely uneven and it's completely inadequate for a variety of reasons. And it had to do with evidence. It had to do with this kind of judicial hole, this space that wasn't the United States, but it was under control of the United States. No president has shut down Gitmo and, and uh, President Obama wanted to shut down Gitmo and that people in the United States fought hard and our legislators did to prevent anybody coming right. to the United States. By the right? way, you know, uh, Trump on the campaign trail said he wanted to send more detainees to Gitmo. Right. When you were there for that first year, was that actively discussed? And if it's so, and if so, why wasn't that route taken? So I can only speak to my focus the first year and uh, Guantanamo wasn't a top priority for me because at the time we were still knee deep in a fight to take the physical caliphate away from right, ISIS. But you, were, but you were more and more ISIS detainees were, were taken people. into com right. custody, were, uh, yeah, were captured, and the question was, what are you going to do with them? So what you we didn't take them to Guantanamo. That's right. Why not? That's right, because they were still, many of them were be, still being exploited for intelligence for, with our Kurdish partners, right? right? The Kurds took it upon themselves. This goes back to why I have a uh, healthy respect for our, our, our Kurd uh, mm -hmm. allies, because they held those detainees. I've talked to reporters that said, hey, they're even doing, to this day, the Kurds are even doing mm -hmm. rehabilitation. What we did do, what I can say we did, and I, every foreign partner that came to see me, and we had amazing foreign partners in the counterterrorism space, I talked to them about taking back their own detainees because it's not a United States problem. It's a world problem. And along with Ali Sufan and others, and this goes to your point as well, we signed a letter saying the world community needs to take back those detainees because the real problem is we have 70,000 some odd number of women that are radicalizing in a camp in Syria along with children. And that's a future problem. And the world has to get their arms around this. It is not just a United States problem. And I told every foreign partner that came to see me very diplomatically that they needed to take responsibility. So that's what I focused mm. on. Uh, Chris, the Spy Museum, of course, uh, chronicles the history of, of espionage. But history, as we all know, sheds light on where we're going. Right. And so I want to ask you a little bit about the future of espionage as you see it. Um, and I want to start with a story that uh, Yahoo News published just recently about how technological developments, you know, big data, biometric screening has made it much harder, if not impossible in some ways, for human spies to operate in the digital age. Talk about the challenges of human espionage going forward. And, and I think you've got some views on, um, on, on some of the ways to sort of mitigate those problems. 
Yeah, so thank you for that question. I think it's an important one. And, and again, I think that the Spy Museum contextualizes history. It contextualizes current events with intelligence history and with the artifacts. And as you walk through the museum, you see all the artifacts of intelligence history. And technology, I think, in time is going to cause us to go back to use some of the techniques, the tactics, the tradecraft procedures procedures that we use during the Cold War. Go back to personal meetings. Um, do you go to a meeting with a, with a cell phone or not when it has everything about you? And who are you anyway? I am, ver- this is what I tell everyone, I am very happy that I'm not a case officer now uh, because I grew up in a different era. The well, last- think about how hard it is to recruit these days when young people all have social media footprints. And if you wipe those social media footprints, the bad guys know that you've done that and become suspicious, right? Or conversely, what's also happened is this very idea, and I think the article gets at it, and I like the article. Jenna McLaughlin wrote it as well. Jenna and Zach Dorfman, right. I like that, and people reached out to me to ask me my opinion. I will also say that there's a democratization of spying and spy tools now. What do I mean by that? What I mean, and that's not my original idea, it was from another piece I read and I agree. What's happening is social media has a double-edged sword. It also allows uh, non-sophisticated intelligence service. When this was the domain of the biggest, most sophisticated intelligence services, now there's this idea that more people have access to social media. More people control online. More people can build a relationship with people online. There's greater vulnerabilities. It's a double-edged sword. At the same time, any technology going to a meeting means all of that stuff has to have appropriate backstopping. That is a complex problem. And I don't know how it's going to be resolved other than going backwards to some extent, going back to the Yeah, the bricks and sticks, as they say, some of the tools that are in the spy museum, or going back to personal meetings with the appropriate technologies, really, really ensuring dead drops. That's right. uh, Brush. That's exactly right. We're going to be going back to those old school techniques of passing secrets or obtaining them rather than through the digital means is what you're saying. To some extent, I think that's got to happen, Yeah. right? Because the technology makes intelligence officers extremely vulnerable. And they're operating in that space now. And I have a lot of respect for how they're doing it. And I don't have the details on how they're that doing it. That may be better for spy movies and spy <laughs> novels, right? right? You know, you get those great scenes in parks. Yes. Well, it's clear for those uh, interested in this subject that the best place to come in Washington to learn about them is the spy museum chris costa thanks for joining us thank you very much thanks to former trump nsc official and executive director of the international spy museum chris costa for joining us on this episode of skullduggery don't forget to subscribe to skullduggery on apple podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts and tell us what you think leave a review the latest episode is also on sirius xm on the weekend check it out on potus channel 124 on saturdays at 3 p.m eastern time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.